Hello, everyone, and welcome. We are the MI guys here at the Institute for Individual and Organizational Change. And uh, today, per the usual, we have our director, Casey Jackson. Hello. And Tammy Calais. Hi. Wonderful coordinator so much and trainer and MI du jour, whatever you call that. Extraordinary. <laughs> Extraordinary. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm firing you next week, so it's du jour. And I think <laughs> we'll have a different plate. We'll have a different soup of the day. <laughs> <laughs> So clearly I'm losing my job soon, so maybe you'll see more of Tammy, but my name is John Gilbert. Uh, I'm opening this up. For today, we have um, uh, a topic that could go all sorts of ways, so I'll be curious how we kind of uh, navigate it, but it's uh, one for a little bit longer of a podcast on MI and cultural differences, and so Tammy, how did we come to that? Did someone uh, ask us about it, or what, just what's the background before we dive in? You know, I think that's just one of the topics that uh, you guys have talked about in the past that people question how relevant MI is across cultural differences. Um, and so I just always jotted it down to say, let's talk about this at some point. So, yeah, so that's how we got today. I, I think um, because the topic triggers so many issues within me to even talk about it. Um, I have enough awareness to think, who are you to talk about this topic when you're a Caucasian male, a middle-aged male? Um, so the first thing I'll say, I don't care how great this podcast unfolds, there is no way we can deal with it comprehensively um, mm -hmm. because I don't know all things about cultural differences and cultural awareness. I know there's so much about implicit bias that there's no way we can go and expand and talk on every aspect of that. And there's so many cultural adjustments you can make with motivational reviewing, not only from a, um, a cultural perspective as far as race or ethnicity goes, but also with accessibility. I just had a great conversation yesterday in terms of deaf and hard of hearing culture, subculture, um, when we talk about gender differences. So we'll talk more generally about this, but I will not claim to be by any stretch of the imagination an expert on cultural issues or motivational and cultural issues, but we definitely can launch into this conversation that we I way that I think can be value added. So that's just kind of my disclaimer when I even hear it. I just think, oh my gosh, I hope people don't think that we think or I think that I'm an expert on motivational and cultural issues, um, but definitely have some experience and perspective that I'd love to, to be able to share and talk about. So that, I just wanted to kind of lay that out there as we dive into this very complex concept awesome so and i'll just add to that you had mentioned uh you have been exposed to a variety of things and that might be helpful to for those that haven't heard you and not to go long on it but briefly what are some of those different cultural things be it working in the prison system be it working with different ethnic groups be it working with different gender identities what are some of the just to give people a sense that um, you know, you're not claiming to be anything, you're going to remain humble, yeah. but at the no. same time, what are some of those kind of cultural differences you've worked with within my? Well, the ones, I mean, just that we talked about just behaviorally, I mean, I, I spent <laughs> decades actually working with children and adolescents, which it can be its own subculture. And again, this is where people get really offended when you say things like that. And some people go, of course, we can include that in different cultures or subcultures. Um, working with, I had the just a huge privilege of working extensively with deaf and hard of hearing and working extensively with uh, blind and visually impaired and motivational as well too. And so it just, 
as being incredibly naive, knowing MI, but not knowing how does it work within subcultures, that was incredibly helpful for me. And with certain organizations we've worked with, um, not only within the United States, but internationally as well too, just learn a lot about language differences and cultural differences. So I've been exposed to quite a bit and would not say I'm an expert at any um, of that, but just definitely have an awareness. And it was amazing. It's ironic because even today we had a, an advanced training, online streaming training today and advanced training. And, and uh, this amazing woman, Georgina, uh, wanted to stay on the call a little bit afterwards. And we talked a little bit about this um, because it's something that fascinates her um, coming from a different ethnic culture. And the thing that she has been obsessed with, and it, it really, I think, lends so well to this conversation, is starting to see motivational interviewing and her first exposure to it as such a great equalizer. She, in short order, has really picked up the spirit of motivational interviewing. It's kind of like the podcast that John, you and I had with Brian Mc, uh, um, too. It just really getting to different levels of how do you leave your reality and step into somebody else's reality. For me, that was my first foray into really understanding how this can be a cross-cultural approach. I remember when I was learning MI as a student and then teaching it, I still remember the rounder video, uh, yeah, the rounder video, and um, Dr. Teresa Moyers was doing the narration for the first 30 seconds before the video example starts. And what she said is that reflective listening crosses cultural boundaries. And that just stuck with me. And I thought, how does that cross cultural boundaries just because you do a reflective statement? And what I started to understand on a deeper level is that deep empathy starts to cross cultural boundaries. Mm -hmm. And then if you combine that with equipoise, the way we teach equipoise and look at equipoise, staying in an equal position, unbiased position. So if I step into someone else's reality without bias, and without judgment, and look at the world the way they're looking at the world, that can be an equalizer. It doesn't, it doesn't eliminate or negate racial disparities. It doesn't negate uh, stigma and bias against people in the uh, LBGTQ community, uh, or the ways that women are repressed in our culture. There, it doesn't negate any of that but it does give me the capacity to step inside someone else's reality, look at the world through their lens without judgment, which I'll say a thousand times, and then be able to find out how can I orchestrate helping this individual get their behavior in line with their values. Um, there's cultural things we have to be aware of in MI. There's things that I've heard of in working with um, some populations within kind of an Asian Pacific Island population. Um, there's different considerations on how healthcare professionals are viewed. In different cultures, there's ways that you look at healthcare professionals are viewed differently in, in different ways. And so how we frame certain words in a certain way, people can think we're giving them ideas and suggestions when we think we're doing reflective listening. Mm -hmm. So there, there are other nuances culturally, and there's significantly more than I even know of. Um, but what the reset button for me is, is that again, I get to enter someone else's reality with respect, look at the world, through the way they're looking at the world without judgment and see, do they have ambivalence about the target behavior? Mm -hmm. And again, that is an equalizer, irrespective of um, race, ethnicity, 
um, sexual orientation, any of those issues that we talk about. So. Well, and one thing I'll just add to that too, Casey, is just to clarify, there's a difference between empathy and sympathy too. Hugely. So, yeah. So when we talk about deep empathy, if you want to talk about that, that's really helpful too, because it's easy. I think a lot of people, I don't, you know, again, I'm not, I'm not a lot of people, but sometimes I'll, I'll hear people and they often um, think of, oh yeah, I'm, I'm pretty empathetic because I really understand your situation. Um, yeah, which we know as soon as people say that, the first thing that person's brain that hears that says is, no, you don't. I mean, it literally, it's just, it has the paradoxical effect. We mm -hmm. think we're having this impact and has the 180 degree opposite impact on that, on that thought process. Yeah. Um, and, and when I think of it, it, gosh, I can't remember. I was just talking again, this is just, I've had so many really good conversations in, in recent days around things similar to this. And we were talking about, I think it was yesterday about um, advocacy. And it's a really interesting corridor to walk down with advocacy because it can, it can come from a place of sympathy mm -hmm. and wanting to fix, which there's nothing wrong with wanting to fix and having sympathy. But in some ways, sympathy can disempower individuals as well too, or populations. And when we see any human being, most people, when they see human beings that are abused or stigmatized or marginalized or have struggled through generations of poverty or generations of abuse or repression, it tends to want us, most human beings, that humanity in us wants to make a difference in those situations. Mm -hmm. And when it's born from that level of human compassion, we think, how could anything negative come from that? And then when you overlay it with what is the intention of MI, if we're trying to affect behavior change, these are, these are conversations I see on the motivational you know, trainers group, the Mint group, threads all the time. And that's why I don't think that I'm qualified to answer all the questions around this. People are so much smarter and thought about this more than I have. But when you look through that lens, are we trying to affect behavior change? Are we trying to affect behavior change in the population we're supporting and advocating for? Are we trying to change behaviors of people that are not in those populations or repressing or abusing or marginalizing them um, from a place of power and privilege? Those are the things that I try to look through the basic constructs of motivational interviewing. And so when you think from a sympathy perspective, what we tend to want to do more is rescue and, and, and provide resources for, which does not necessarily empower an individual um, it doesn't mean it doesn't but it doesn't necessarily mean that it does empower them when you think from an empowerment model when i think of trying to support autonomy and activate an individual you're usually building those internal constructs and internal resources within the individual or within that subculture within that community that's an empowerment perspective and so what i'm going to have to try to keep repressing is my sympathy which is not a bad thing, but me feeling sorry for, being triggered by my sorrow for, does not help somebody change their behavior, change the circumstance. Mm -hmm. So again, it's, there's, there's reasons why we can teeter on one side or the other for very good reason, um, but these are just ways that I'm trying to kind of walk through a conversation about motivation and, and cultural difference. And to that point, there's uh, framings and kind of collectivistic culture like the savior syndrome or the savior mm -hmm. complex. And 
uh, that can people talk about that in different ways. And my friend Brett was talking to me about that recently. And it's even in relationships, we can have that happen because we care so much about helping this person grow or something like that. And it could be the same for an advocate. You care so much, your compassion is so strong. You want to give them a fish now and then kind of teach them to fish along the way. And it's what I think you're tapping into cases is not bad to want that. And sometimes there's a place to help people with opportunity. It's if you're gonna help them in the long run, it's tapping into something that they have control over given their circumstances. And that's where I feel you're doing, to do that, you have to really get past all your own belief systems to get into their worldview and really be curious how they feel, what they want, make some statements around that and be curious, what does it matter that change happens for them? Why does that matter? And then with all that, what do they have control over even if it still is unfair? Right. And that there are unjust things happening in the world, given you care so much about that, what would be most helpful for aligning your behaviors with who you wanna be? And if you're a policymaker, you can use the same perspective at helping change policy if you're a leader. And maybe if you're not a leader now, maybe you're such an advocate that you want to become a leader to get your behavior. And if you're not a leader, maybe you try to help that person in front of you navigate their homeless, drug-addicted situation with all the biases that they have running against them. You still are approaching it from their perspective. And that's what I appreciate that you're saying is, it's the same basic construct of behavior change, which Mm -hmm. does not take away all the societal issues going on. But if we keep empowering each one around us, maybe we can change society in that process. Well, and, and the thing that I think is so realistic is there are so many shades and so many different nuances every situation there's an individual experience within the collective conscious or the collective culture and and so there's subcultures within subcultures within subcultures you know here's three human beings on this call that are all caucasian you know u.s born citizens and all three of us celebrate thanksgiving differently we were raised differently in the way we all celebrate thanksgiving but the way we experience it and what that generates and how our families structure that, that's a different, I mean, it's just one such a simple, oversimplified concept. But I, I think that's what is helpful from an MI perspective is that there's such an individualistic perspective, but within a more pro-social, global, pro-social, pro-value perspective at the same time. Are my behaviors in line with what my values are? And my values in a mainstream, generically speaking, American culture tends to be more individualistic. I want my individual freedoms. I want to be able to march if I want to march. I want to be able to, you know, go in the streets if I want to, whether I'm supposed to have a mask on my face or not. No one can tell me that's the country I live in, which is different than some cultures like in China that may have more of a, a, more of a um, community culture where what's good for everyone is what's good for me. Um, and, and again, within that culture, there's people that don't believe that, that they live within that, that culture, they live within that country and they, inside themselves, they feel internally conflicted because that is not their value system, even though that's a collective value system and vice versa within like the U S. So, so those are the things that I think are so helpful. And then when we bring it back from not talking about a whole cultural training into motivational interviewing, 
is this is what I find is so amazing about motivational interviewing is it's almost irrelevant. Who's almost irrelevant who's sitting in front of me? What's most relevant is my capacity to leave my worldview and step inside their worldview without judgment. One of the things, and all three of you, all of us have experienced this, you two have experienced this as well. I think of several videos that we show. And at some point in the training, somebody's gonna bring up, regardless of what the gender differences were, you know what, John, as soon as I say it, somebody's gonna bring up, I wonder if he would have said the same thing if it would have been a man. Or it could be a female client, and they would say, I wonder if they would have responded the same way if that would have been a female that was the counselor. Um, and those are very, very, very valid questions. Incredibly valid questions that we should pay attention to consistently. For power differential, privilege differentials, we need to pay attention to that and be aware and talk to that. My response, looking through an MI lens only, but looking through an MI lens, is my sweet spot as an MI practitioner, when I'm using motivational ring, when I'm trying to be in that zone with motivational interviewing, is I want the distance between the two of us to evaporate. I want them to no longer realize that I'm in the room because I'm so focused on that individual's reality. And what's fascinating is many of those things that make us different disappear in an MI-based conversation. And even though they disappear, what I can never escape is I know I have implicit bias that I don't know that I have. I know I have it, but I don't know what it is sometimes. So I can think that I'm, those are dissipating, but what the beauty in MI is, is the person I'm talking to will give me immediate feedback. So, and that can be because there's cultural difference or because there's no cultural difference. There's just a perspective difference. So I can reflect something by saying, you know, you've struggled with depression for a while now. And I'm saying, I've never had depression in my life. What are you talking about? I just learned the difference about how I perceive depression from a clinical perspective and how Tammy perceives depression with what she thinks depression means. Just by using that reflective statement, it gives me more awareness of what her worldview is. So when we get into things like poverty or abuse or law enforcement or community safety, those are going to trigger all sorts of different reactions in different individuals irrespective of some of the, the cultural differences and very much at times because of the cultural differences. And this is why from an MI perspective, I get to step into each individual reality. I can step into the individual reality with MI of somebody that's been arrested and incarcerated and it's from a minority culture um, that was raised in a culture of poverty. I can step into the reality of a law enforcement officer who may never have had any of those experiences or is generationally raised in the military. Um, and that's a different perspective. And both of those can be an MI adherent perspective and both individuals that I'm talking to can feel heard and understood. It doesn't mean I agree or disagree with either one because that's not my job in motivational interviewing. But it's a way for me to step into a different cultural perspective or a different awareness of an individual and then work with that individual to see is their behavior lining up with all of their values. And if their behavior is not, this is why MI is MI is MI, if it is not, there's a likelihood they're gonna blame outside of themselves or make excuses. It doesn't mean that they are inaccurate when they blame outside of themselves. 
And it doesn't mean that excuses are not valid. It's just predictable and probable if their behavior's not in line with their values, that they may blame outside of themselves or make excuses or talk about why they're stuck or why status quo is better or why they can't move forward. Mm -hmm. So this is just all the, the things we track in MI and how you can see where some of that template overlies when you look through a cultural lens. Oh, go ahead, Timmy. Well, I, uh, if you have a response to that, you can do that because I have a different question slash perspective within this task. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, just, just real quick on that because there's another topic that to address it with culture in general, but is it just brings back up if you're an advocate, how you channel your compassion into the unfolding process in front of you and really attach to that. If you are that compassionate with your advocacy, because you're likely going to be helpful to them even in spite of the hardships they face. And that's a really, really powerful contribution to someone. And then if you want to do more than that for society, that's, that's your call as the helper. And I think that's a very powerful place for talking about advocacy. And then if you're talking with people, say someone that's a racist, talking with someone of a different ethnicity, well, how much are you engaging in that to see some change means you might have to be some change, which to Casey's point, it means you treating this person as an equal and not wrong, which oof, even saying that out loud with antisocial things like that, it's like, oh, what do you mean? But they're so wrong because blah, blah, blah. It's how can I step in this person's worldview and get past my own righteousness? And as I do that, it dissolves the differences between us and there's a higher likelihood they could consider a different option. And that is the power of being able to respond, which is what responsibility is. It's taking that on to be able to respond and maybe navigate a different outcome. And it's just so powerful, I think, what you're talking about, Casey, but it's hard to do and it takes an emotional intelligence and an emotional practice to do some of this stuff, uh, even if you're not an advocate, uh, but you're just someone trying to be in a normal conversation and someone triggers you uh, that's of a different culture. One of the things I wanted to drill into a little further, John, that you brought up, um, because I, and again, I'm going to tread lightly on this one as well, too, is I'm always curious about how advocacy at times, can it be potentially counterproductive? Because the thought of advocacy, and I'm, you know, and I've been thinking a lot through this, is advocacy so much of the time is doing it for someone, mm. or 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 paving the way for them, and I can easily make a case as someone in a position of power and privilege, by most definitions, if someone doesn't have power and privilege, I want to pave the way for people to gain access to more power and privilege. So. That's a perspective on advocacy. My huge cautionary perspective on that as well too is the very act of that can have a disempowering message to it. Um, that I need to do this or knock these walls down for you or I need to pave the way for you. There can be an implicit bias within that. That's why this is such an onion perspective that after every layer there's another layer and another layer and another layer. And so I think from an advocacy perspective, which is why so many people go into, you know, generically why we go into healthcare or behavioral health is we want to advocate, we want to help, we want to fix. 
Um, and so it comes from, again, the best of intention. Uh, but I, I'm also aware that um, I just think of this, I, what it triggers in me, and this was earlier in my career, and when we're talking, John, you were asking about different experiences I've had with different cultures or subcultures, when I was training for um, groups that are and work with people that are deaf and hard of hearing. And, um, and another group that I was working with was, that was predominantly blind and visually impaired. And I still remember this one individual in a training, um, and he was somebody that was blind, and phenomenal social worker. He and I, to this day, have become friends, even though he was a trainee, and we just really connected. But at that moment, we weren't very connected, and he was very much pushing me, what's the difference between empathy and sympathy? And it really helped me understand this thing about advocacy differently, because I kept giving him definitions from my MI vantage point of difference between empathy and sympathy. And he kept, and he finally just pushed back and said, I want to know your difference about how you know the difference within yourself about empathy and sympathy. And so I just thought, and I'm here in front of, you know, 40 people. And I thought, okay, close my eyes, think about this for a second. I thought, okay, when I feel sympathy, so I'm thinking, I was thinking about street kids that I was working with. Um, and I thought, oh my gosh, when I feel sympathy, what I want to do is I want to go buy him a burger, give him some food. I want him to be able to come crash at my house and give him a place to sleep for the night. Um, because I want to fix it. I want to solve it. I want to help it. When I feel sorry for somebody, I want to fix it. And then, because I was good enough at MI at that moment in time when I'm training it, I knew it well enough that I thought, okay, now what is empathy? So I was talking out loud about that. And I said, okay, now when I feel empathy with the same person, I'm inside their skin. The, I almost had this visceral reaction, like, get off me. Like, leave me. Why are you trying to fix me or give me a place to live? Like, what are you doing? Like, if I'm inside their skin and somebody's trying to do these things for me, then it's just like, who are you? Why do you think that I need a fish? Why do you think, why do you think I need a bed for the night? Like it just felt so intrusive and literally I could almost feel it in my skin of going from wanting to, you know, say, Hey buddy, this is going to be fine. It's going to be okay from a sympathetic perspective. And then when I go from an empathetic perspective, I'm in their shoes that it's like, Oh my gosh, like leave me alone. Like, you know, why, you, you know, you don't care about me. This doesn't matter. And I just thought, gosh, that's such an interesting way to experience the same situation from a sympathetic perspective or an empathetic perspective. And I think this is where advocacy can tip into the side of doing for people and stepping on people's freedoms and rights and empowerment by thinking I'm in a position, so I'm going to pave the way for you. Um, I remember with one organization um, I worked with that, there was an advocacy organization and they were really frustrated that the group I was training, they thought that MI was being used to opt people out of services. Um, and I'm like, that's not the way it's being trained. They're like, well, less of our people are accessing services. They're, they're being turned away. Like your people are using MI and our people are being turned away. And which is very much an us, them, obviously perspective. And so when I was listening to the conversations, what was just fascinating, again, paradoxical about it, is when I listened to the conversations, the individual, the clients, the, the professionals were using MI and the clients were saying, you know what, I don't think I'm right now that I'm walking through my own ambivalence, I don't think I'm ready to get a job right now. I think I need to deal with my mental health issues first. So they were empowered to make the best decision for themselves, but then they're not signing up for a service. So the people that are advocating are saying, all these people are getting turned away now that they're using MI. And it's like, well, no, they're being empowered to make the best decision for themselves. 
and and so it, it really is an interesting balance um, between which perspectives we're paying attention to with people that are in different perspectives or different cultures or subcultures. What is empowerment and what is advocacy? Where does it overlap in a Venn diagram and where are they separate constructs? I, I, the last thing that I'll say about it as well too that really helped to clarify for me is we're talking um, the difference between empathy and sympathy and advocacy and those pieces of it. Um, but I also think about whose decision is it when we're thinking from an empowerment perspective, like who gets to define what a better outcome is. Um, and we've talked about in trainings a lot recently in terms of you can have people, I remember talking to Dr. William Miller about this when I was struggling with why are we adding compassion to the mix, which I believe in, but I can understand from an MI perspective, why do we need to add it in there? And what he said is there's people that are incredibly compassionate, but they don't know how to express empathy. That doesn't mean it's there, doesn't mean they're inclusive and doesn't mean they're exclusive, but there's people that can express that have compassion that don't know how to express empathy. And there's people that can express empathy accurately that are not operating from a place of compassion. It's the same thing that I think of with advocacy and empowerment. Just because we say advocacy does not mean we're empowering individuals. Um, so, and just because we're empowering individuals does not mean we're working actively to try to develop advocacy. We're working from an advocacy perspective. Um, it's more from a self-advocacy perspective. So again, I'm just gonna keep going back to where I'm not saying there's rights and there's right or wrong in this, um, the way we're talking about it, that one perspective is right and another perspective is wrong. But this is just a fascinating way to look at motivation through a cultural lens. Yeah, so oh, go ahead. to get to Tammy, because I know you have something to bring in here as well. It's just, it, we're so used to quantifying things versus qualifying them. So even right now with the COVID-19 uh, stuff going on and, and lives being saved, no one is really addressing, well, what's the quality of the end of their life? Not that life has been extended, not that there's this many deaths and this many survivals. How much are we monitoring, measuring, and documenting the quality at the end of this life? Just like you were saying, the quality of empowerment. Who's defining that? And the more the person in front of you, regardless of the culture, is defining that for themselves in spite of what they have going on, trying to have control for their hardships around them, there's a higher likelihood you're going to have a qualitative difference that they are empowered being more of who they want to be. That's not you just thinking this one way of being engaged in the program is immediately better than right. not being engaged in the program. I, and I just think in the most, you know, one example I just remember that was kind of emblazoned in my emblazoned in my brain as a kid was that I think with the native experience and I think of when people believe they were advocating and building these homes uh, for natives on the reservation and then they were so angry that multiple families would just live in one room and wouldn't live in the other rooms it's just such a and and then being offended by that and I just think oh my gosh that's such a fascinating perspective that we get offended when we go out of our, because we feel we go out of our way to help someone and they don't accept our help, that can be advocacy. Um, but it doesn't mean that it's empowerment or that it's even culturally responsive. Um, so again, with motivational interviewing, we're talking about, for the most part, individual behavior change, for the most part. We're talking about how do we help individuals get their behavior in line with their values. And my beliefs and what I think you should do is irrelevant in an MI-based conversation. What it is is helping people 
clarify who they are, what are their internal drivers, what are the barriers they have in front of them, what are the strengths and resources and services they have access to, to become the best version of themselves they want to be. So when you look from that perspective, it is really a cross-cultural perspective, um, irrespective, again, of, of gender, of you know, nationality, of race, religion, um, or, or identity. Um, it just really does get into, for this individual, how do they feel about this behavior within them, and where are their core values, and how does this impact it? Makes a lot of sense. Well, um, I, I had a question, but I'm going to save it since we're running out of time. I'm okay. going to save it for another podcast. All right. Sounds good. Yeah, I'll just jump in and say we can expand on this more, too. We didn't really talk about style and how style fits in, but it's, yep. it's similar to the experiences we've had. Of If you do everything that you were just saying, Casey, style unveils itself as you being authentically this way, and you don't need to worry about soft versus hard uh, masculine, feminine energy, all that stuff that we can get into. Um, it really becomes your own with the slang, with the whatever that fits best for you. And I think part of that, as I just wanted to throw out there, is we don't have a ton of examples in MI of a lot of different cultures out on video, out on audio. And so I think that's a bias we have that we can work on in the MI world of why there might be so much confusion. Having listen to at least hundreds if not more of these tapes of uh, other ethnic cultures in listening to MI, it's like, oh wait, this can be so authentic to this type of culture, this type of slang, but it's because they're embodying what you were talking about, Casey, not because they're trying to do a certain kind of slang or say, hey buddy, or any of that stuff. It's they're right. just really trying to make it about this person and everything you said. So I think that's just one last point I wanted to add is it's not about trying to fake a style or mirror a style. It's about being this way, being you, and matching where they're at. You know, there's certain things that I think of about genuineness, authenticity, compassion that are cross-cultural. Um, and, and those are just things that are such core constructs within motivational interviewing. It, it, it just kind of wraps up the whole concept. There is, just the way I started off, there is absolutely no way in a podcast, or I mean, there's people that do podcasts for 10 years, they can do podcasts on every aspect of culture, um, and, it, and it barely scratches the surface. So this was just, since that did come up about motivation and, and cultural differences, uh, this was a way for us to kind of dip our toe into that. Perfect. Well, uh, thank you guys for answering. Um, and as always, feel free to send any questions our way or any topic suggestions. We are very open to doing that on our podcast. You can email them to me at tammy.calais at ifioc.com. And we'd be happy to take on any topics anyone has. So, but yes, thank you guys for answering. And um, thank you guys for being a part of our podcast. And truly, we're just trying to provide the communication solution that's going to change your world. Thank you. All right. Bye, everyone.